0: Going to start a new series here uh, this weekend and go for the next uh, three weeks. And uh, it's kind of a different kind of series. Each message stands on its own. And I'm going to deal with uh, tough passages of Scripture, famous, controversial passages of Scripture. And so this weekend, and actually this weekend we'll bleed into next week, but uh, this weekend we're going to talk about Matthew 5, uh, 38 to 42, which is the famous uh, turn the other cheek passage. And of course, uh, there's been. Uh, you know, lots of argument and controversy about that passage over the years in the Christian church. Uh, Two weeks from now, I want to hit the mother of all controversial passages, which is Romans 8 to 11, which is the whole Calvinist Arminian thing. And I figure if if no one's killed me by the end of these three weeks, I'm going to live for a long time, all right? So I'm very happy to be doing this. You'll also notice I'm wearing a tie today for the very first time ever preaching. That's because my younger brother... Yes, thank you. Uh, little bro shamed me there a couple of weeks when he preached for the first time and did it. So I'm just doing it once, and, and uh, here we go. Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. One of the most famous commands, one of the most famous passages, one of the most famous lines in uh, all of Christianity, not just to us Christians, but to everyone outside of Christianity. If you talk to uh, Muslims and Jews and atheists, if they know anything about the Bible, pretty much one thing that they all know is this Christian distinctive of turn the other cheek, all right? So it's a very famous passage, probably one of the most, if not the most famous command in the Christian scriptures, not just in the Christian world, but in the world at large, okay? The only problem is that I believe it has been vastly misunderstood and misapplied uh, over the years, and uh, one, one uh, tragedy that has occurred over the years is that uh, many women uh, over the years, I don't think as much anymore, but in the past certainly, have been counseled by Christian leaders to go back into abusive situations because of teaching about turn the other cheek. And I wonder how many parents have taught their kids to never, ever hit back even if you're being attacked, or if you see someone else being attacked in a school playground. Turn the other cheek is just, it's infiltrated kind of all of Christian thought. It's infiltrated our thought to this extent that many Christians now feel guilty about standing up for themselves. It's true. I know of many marriages that are subpar, not very good marriages, because... And I'm not talking about abusive marriages here, I'm just talking about marriages where one spouse runs over the other spouse, and the spouse who's always being run over feels like it unspirit- would be unspiritual for them to stand up and say, I don't like how you're treating me, I don't like how this is going. We as Christians, many of us, because of ultimately of how turn the other cheek has infiltrated into our consciences, we actually feel like it's unspiritual to stand up and say what we feel to set boundaries, to stand up against someone who's running over us. And it's not just in marriage, it can be at work in all kinds of of, uh, relationships. And of course, then there's the obvious one, and and there's there's, uh, a war. I mean, if we take, for example, World War II, uh, many Christians, and by the way, I'm not insulting these Christians, I'm not attacking these Christians today at all. I have high respect for the fact that they followed their consciences and did what they thought was right. That takes courage. But many Christians refuse to go and fight against uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis and and the Japanese and the Axis powers. They refuse to go and fight against them because they believe that turn the other cheek means that you don't resist an evil person, not physically. And again, I'm I'm not attacking those people in this message. Um, They were doing what they thought was right. That's the only thing they could do if that's what you believe the Bible says. My question today is, is that really what the Bible says? If it is what the Bible says, then that's what we have to do because it's our authority. All right? If the Bible does say that you never resist an evil person, then that's what we're going to teach today and that's what we're going to look at and we need to never resist uh, an evil person. Never. We need to always turn the other cheek. We need to become a doormat. Of course, and then uh, there's the hypothetical question. Well, it's not really, I mean, it's hypothetical in here today, but it's not hypothetical for many people. Uh, Every day, people are robbed and assaulted. But there's the hypothetical question, right? What, what does Jesus want you to do? You're walking to your car one night. Or your daughter is walking to her car one night. And some thugs jump you or jump your daughter or whatever it is to assault or to harm you. What does Jesus want you to do in that situation? Does he want you to turn the other cheek in that situation? If that's what the Bible says, then that's what we've got to do. Alright? So we're going to look into this thing. Alright? So bow your heads with me. You close your eyes. And we're going to get into turn the other cheek. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. I want to start by uh, praying for the encounter, Father, and uh, they're in their last session right now. I pray for Stefan as he's teaching that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you administer powerfully every person that has spent money and taken time out of their schedule to go on that retreat. I pray that every single one of them will have chains fall from their lives this morning. I pray that every single person that went on that retreat this weekend is, will have heard you or is going to hear you this morning, but they will leave this weekend having had a significant encounter with you. I pray that you would keep each one of them safe driving home on the roads. And Heavenly Father, for the rest of us this morning here in this service, Jesus, we want to look at the whole counsel of your word. And this morning I was worshiping you again. I love your justice. I love your goodness and I love your wisdom. And I pray that you would help us to apply your 2,000-year-old words to our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, let's start by looking at the passage, shall we? Matthew 5, 38-42. Famous passage, again. I'm sure most of you have read this passage a number of times and, and have heard messages about this passage a number of times. All right, and let's look at it again. Verse 38 to look at this, these commands on the service, these are, I believe, some of the craziest commands in all of the Bible. If someone sues you to take your tunic, that's kind of like your underwear, okay? So if someone takes you to court and takes your underwear, Jesus says, you don't just give them your underwear, you give them everything, you give them your outer cloak as well. Now really, is that what he's saying? your business leader here today, and someone just may, takes, a, takes you to court frivolously, for no reason, maliciously, just taking advantage of you, does Jesus just mean you're not supposed to fight back at all, you should just give him your whole business? That's what it says on the surface. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, if anyone asks you to do anything, Jesus says, you not only go with them one, you go with them two every time, you give them double every time. And if someone begs from you, do not refuse them. You could be in downtown Winnipeg and someone is begging money from you. You don't ask where they're going to spend it. You just give it to them. That's what this seems to say on the service, does it not? I mean, it just seems so clear. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on, on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. I mean, what, what is there to have a message about, Right? I mean, some of you are wondering there, Chris, what's there to preach about? We can just close our our Bibles up right now. We can head home. And what we need to do is just lie down and become doormats. We never resist. We always give in. We give in to lawsuits. We give in to physical assault. We give in to everything. We give people what they want, no matter what they want, right? The Bible is very clear. It's just one teensy little problem. Jesus didn't follow his own advice. If that's what this is saying, if, if that is what this is saying, and that's what many Christians have taken it to say, but if that is what this is saying, I have a bit of a problem because Jesus didn't follow his own advice. And I could show you many examples. I'll just show you two here at the beginning of this message. Okay? If that's what this is saying, we have a problem because Jesus didn't do it. John chapter 2, 13 to 17. Let's look at it. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That doesn't look like how we understand turn the other cheek to look, does it? Okay? Now, I don't want you to miss the violence of this passage. See, the Bible tells stories in a very compact, economical way. So in one sentence, it just says, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And then it moves on. Okay, but I want you to think about that. Okay, the Bible packs it all into one sentence, but I want you to think about that for just a moment. Okay, this involves dozens of people. Okay, Passover was high season in the temple because that's when thousands of Jews from all over the world, from hundreds of miles away in many cases, would all come together at the temple to make sacrifices. All right, and so, uh, uh, and so many of them now the Old Testament law actually provided for if a person lived. Too far away from the temple, okay? And they wanted to go and make a sacrifice, but maybe they lived hundreds of miles away. Well, it's not very, uh, it's not gonna be very easy to bring, you know, a bunch of cows and animals all these miles, right? So the Old Testament made provision for them. It says, if you live too far away from the temple to bring your animals all that way, you can sell the animals you're gonna sacrifice, take the money, go to Jerusalem, and then buy new animals at Jerusalem and sacrifice them there, okay? So the selling of animals. at the temple during the Passover was actually a perfectly fine thing to do, technically. There was no problem with it. The problem was that the Jewish leaders had gone from selling of animals being a little side thing in order to enable people to worship. The selling had become the main thing and it was squeezing out the worship. I mean, the Jewish leaders, all they cared about was money, 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 money now. They just saw the Passover wasn't a time to honor God, wasn't a time to help faraway Jews get close to God, it was a time to make money. And so they had turned the temple into a marketplace, and it got so bad during Passover that people couldn't find a quiet spot in a temple. And you had dozens of money changers with carefully counted stacks of money, gold and silver, and you had cattle salesmen, and you had people coming in and out, and there was no more worship, it had gotten squished out by the selling. And so Jesus sees this and he burns with rage. And so he makes a whip of cords, okay? He makes a whip of cords. This is a premeditated act of violence, okay? Now, I don't know what all goes into making a whip of cords, but, you know, he ties a few knots, okay? He puts the thing together, but he's thinking about what he's about to do, okay? And then I want you to think about something else here threatening these men to leave. Again, this, there are dozens of men here along these tables, and this, they think they're in the right. They think they're per, it's perfectly good for them to do this. Technically, they're obeying the law. In their hearts, they're not. But they're not just going to leave because someone walks up to them and says, you know what, what you guys are doing isn't in the spirit of what should be happening here. I want you all to leave. They would sneer in your face. They would say, what we're doing is perfectly fine according to the law, and anyway, they're desperate for money. This is their high money time. They are not just going to leave when they're asked. So Jesus makes a whip of cords, and then he proceeds one man against dozens, and he he physically drives them out of the temple. Now I want you to think about that. Again, we have one sentence here, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. How did he drive them out? They're not just going willingly. He's hitting them with the whip. Think about that. It bothers some of you because of your namby-pamby pictures of Jesus that you've made up. But he's hitting these guys. I mean, they're getting hit in the back as they run out, right? Ow! There's blood. There's yelling. He's kicking tables over and sending tables flying. He's driving them out of the temple. Now again, our understanding of turning the other cheek is you don't resist an evil person. But if our understanding is correct, Jesus shouldn't have driven them out physically. He should have looked and he should have just said, that's terrible. I hope God's going to do something about it and just let them continue. He doesn't. Let me show you another example. Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gets betrayed by Judas, right? He's going to go to the cross now. And uh, obviously, it's a famous scene. He's there with his disciples. He prays, they fall asleep. He prays, they fall asleep. Then Judas comes and betrays him. And this is often a story that is used by people to compliment the fact that they say we're never supposed to resist an evil person. But actually, you're going to see some things in this story that are going to shock you. Okay? So let's look at this Matthew 26, 47 to 53. While he, that's Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, uh, two things there. First of all, we know from, a, from another account of this in the Gospels that the person doing this is Peter. And the second thing I want to ask you is do you know why Peter cut off the man's ear? I'll tell you why. He missed, <laughs> he wasn't aiming for the ear. He was going like this, and this guy went, whoa, and off came the year, okay? Well, let's keep going here. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, right? For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? And people look at that, and they say, see? Jesus never wants us to physically resist evil people. He just said it right there. Put your sword away, Peter. And it just seems so cut and dried, right? Here's my question. It's just, it bothered me for years. And maybe your mind works this way too. Has it ever bothered you that Peter had a sword with him to begin with? I mean, think about that. Let's just think about that for a moment, shall we? Peter has lived with Jesus for three over three years. I mean, we're not talking he saw Jesus once a week at church for three years. He has lived with him, walked with them. They've been sleeping in the same places, eating together, ministering together. They've been together for over three years. Peter is part of Jesus' inner circle. Now, the question that bothers me is, so here's Peter. He has been in Jesus' inner circle for over three years. Now, if Jesus teaches that you never, ever physically resist an evil person, then why on earth, after three years, is Peter still carrying a sword? By the way, that's the ancient equivalent of a handgun. Peter's packing heat. (laughs) Did you ever think about that? Did you ever imagine to yourself, if Jesus was walking around on the earth right now, would his inner circle be carrying handguns? And the answer is yes, because that's what the disciples were doing. Now, that's bizarre. Well, let me confuse you even a little more. Let me shock you just a bit more. See, why? Because let me tell you why Peter had a sword right there at the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus told him to bring it. Did you know that? Not only what... I mean, it's not just that, that Jesus knew Peter had a sword, and Peter had a sword, and he had never told him to take it off. Somehow, Peter just missed the whole thing about not resisting evil people. But actually, it's much worse than that. Jesus specifically told Peter to bring a sword to the Garden of Gethsemane just before they left. I'm going to show you. It's in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, we have the story of the Garden of Gethsemane as well. Except that there's an extra conversation that Matthew leaves out. And I want to show you this conversation. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 35. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And he said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Okay, and I'm going to finish this passage in just a moment. But just think about that for a moment. See, Jesus had already sent the disciples out on a couple of ministry trips. And on the first couple of ministry trips that he sent them out on, he said, I want you to take Nothing. And many people have read those passages and they have said over the years and over the centuries and they have said the only way to do ministry for Jesus is to go out with nothing. And that is actually false because that's just one time. That sometimes is what Jesus wants you to do but it's not what he always wants you to do because just before he dies he knows he's about to die. They're just about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be betrayed and then he's going to go to the cross. And he says, and now there's a change. From now on when you go out on the road to do ministry guys it's a different thing. You will need a sword. In fact, you will need a sword more than you will need a coat. What? What? Let's finish this passage. Luke 22, verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look here, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And then they went to the garden of Gethsemane. He told them to bring the swords. Now, wouldn't you like to know why he told them to bring the swords? You're going to have to come back next week. I'm serious. I'm going to tell you next week what this is about. My only point here was that turn the other cheek doesn't mean anything like what we think it means. It doesn't mean anything like what we've taken it to mean. Let's go back there. Matthew 5, 38 to 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Let's talk about context a bit here, first of all, because what has happened over the years is that people are just taking this one passage, and then they're building a whole theology out out of it, and they're not looking at what is the whole point of what Jesus is saying here. So let's look at the context. Obviously, this this is part of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It takes up Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Okay? One of the most famous and most important passages of Scripture. It's a very important message on how Jesus wants his followers to live. Okay? And Matthew 5 in particular, the entire chapter pretty much, other than the Beatitudes right at the beginning, but pretty much the entire chapter of, of Matthew 5 is, is about uh, the Old Testament. It's a message about the Old Testament law. And what Jesus is doing throughout the entire chapter 5 is he's preaching on different Old Testament laws and he's explaining them to the people. Now I want you to know something. He is not cancelling out any of the laws. He's not cancelling out any of the laws. He's going through each of the laws. In fact, he's raising the bar on them and he's correcting misunderstandings about them, but he's not cancelling them out. So for example, and you can mark all this down and check it out for yourselves. But for example, uh, chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, Jesus preaches a point on thou shalt not murder. He says, you have heard heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, if you even harbor anger in your hearts, that is murder. So he does not cry. And then he preaches this whole little point on anger in the heart and murder. Okay? So he preaches, and that's what he's doing. In verses 27 to 30, he says, you have heard, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he preaches another point on an Old Testament law. But I say to you, and he raises the bar again, he says, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. So all of chapter 5 is Jesus going through these different Old Testament laws, and he's not canceling them out. He's doing the opposite. He's raising the bar on them. Okay? And in fact, I'll prove this to you. This is what he says in the message, Matthew five seventeen to 19. Just before he starts all these points about the Old Testament laws, he says this. Very famous passage. We preached about it here before itself and often. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is very clearly saying here, I am not cancelling out the Old Testament laws. Very, very clearly. And obviously, we've talked about this. We did a whole series on this in summer. Obviously, the ceremonial laws are gone. But he's talking about the moral laws, all right? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who takes the Old Testament commands and relaxes them and, and lowers the bar on them, he says they're the least in the kingdom of heaven. That's how you give away reward in your future. Okay? Okay? But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right? So that's the context. Matthew 5, turn the other cheek, is part of a whole point in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount about the Old Testament laws where Jesus is not cancelling them. He's raising the bar on them. Okay, let's go back to Matthew 5, 38 to 39. Thanks, Jared. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, okay? Now, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, okay, that is a law, we talked about it uh, in summer. I preached a whole message on it, by the way, okay? So I'm not gonna spend tons of time here on it here today, but I preached a whole message on it on July 16th to 17th, okay? So it was part three of the law series. If this is all new to you, you can go online, listen to it, watch it for free, okay? But what we looked at in that in that uh, series, in that message, is eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. See, a lot of Christians read this passage, and this is what they think. They think Jesus is cancelling out the whole Old Testament ethic of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, and he's ushering in this New Testament ethic of turn the other cheek. And we looked at this back in July. False. The Old Testament did not teach an ethic of eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. The Old Testament had an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth law, but it was only meant to apply to a very specific situation. Right? Very specific situation. Eye for an eye and tooth for tooth was never taught in the Old Testament to apply to your everyday life and your everyday relationships. It was it was meant for an Israelite judge sitting in a Jewish court. And when a criminal would come and stand before him, and let's say the criminal had stolen some sheep, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, told the judge what penalty to impose on the criminal. So eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the setting of a courtroom is actually a wonderfully beautiful, merciful law, isn't it? Because it means that if a criminal has stolen some sheep, when he stands before that judge, he's not going to get his hands cut off as a punishment. He's not going to get hung. He's not going to get his house burned to, ground, to the ground. By the way, these are all punishments that have been used over the years for things like theft. He's not going to get his women, and his, his wife and children sold into slavery. If he stole sheep, he's going to pay back sheep. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Merciful. It means that the punishment will always fit the crime. And if a criminal comes into a Jewish court and he stole a cow, he will pay back cows. He won't be stabbed. He won't be flogged almost to death. He won't be given 25 years in prison or solitary confinement. He will pay back cows for cows, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's a merciful, wonderful law in a courtroom. The problem was that the Jewish leaders... Of Jesus' day were taking that courtroom principle and they were teaching it as a general life principle that applies to all of life. They were teaching people, you can take eye for an eye, tooth for tooth in your everyday life. If someone cheats you, cheat them back. If someone insults you, insult them back. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, he's not changing the law, he's he's confronting false teaching about that law. If Jesus had wanted to cancel the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth law, you know what he would have said? He would have said, It is written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say. But he doesn't say, it is written. He says, you have heard that it was said. And he's confronting false teaching about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. So he's not cancelling out eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth out of a court system, because it's a wonderful law there. He's just saying you can't apply what works in a court to your everyday life. See, there's two spheres of human activity. And and this is where the problem comes in. Because people have this all or nothing thing. They think that in the Old Testament, everything was eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It wasn't. The Old Testament law taught love and mercy and forgiveness in your everyday life. And we looked at that in that series. But people have this false misunderstanding of what he's teaching here. They say in the Old Testament, everything was eye for an eye, and Jesus is getting rid of all of that, and now everything is turned the other cheek. And that's not what Jesus is saying. There's two spheres of human activity, and it's not all or nothing with these laws. There's two spheres of human activity. Sphere one is courtrooms and government, civil authorities. In that sphere, eye for an eye works brilliantly. Jesus most certainly was not cancelling it out because he wasn't cancelling laws in Matthew 5. The problem again was that the Jewish leaders were trying to take a law from sphere one and apply it everywhere in sphere two as well. And Jesus is saying everything has its place. In sphere two, it's turn the other cheek. In sphere one, it's eye for an eye. Sphere two is your individual relationships. Now, if Jesus were teaching today, he would have a different message Because the problem today isn't people teaching one to two. The problem today is that many Christians today are trying to apply two to one. It's just the opposite problem. And that doesn't work any more than trying to take one and put it into two. Let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you. Romans 13 says this. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God... God has given a sword to the civil authorities in sphere one. In our individual relationships, he says, turn the cheek, but he, the other cheek. But in sphere one, he does not tell the judge in the courtroom to turn the other cheek. He says, I have given them a sword and they don't bear it in vain. For he, again, speaking of the government, the civil authority, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God does not expect a judge in a courtroom to turn the other cheek. He expects him to enforce justice. God does not expect a police officer, and there's a violent criminal at large. He does not expect the police officer to turn the other cheek. He expects him to forcibly enforce the law. God does not expect a soldier fighting in a war to turn the other cheek. He does not bear the sword in vain. See, turn the other cheek does not apply. I mean, if you try to apply turn the other cheek to sphere one, you're going to get contradictions all over Scripture. First of all, you won't be able to explain Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 only makes sense when you understand that there are different spheres of human activity and God has different laws for each. But let me show you some other passages. Let me show you some other passages. Psalm 82 verse 4. And this is God, this chapter, and you can look it up, you can look at the commentaries everywhere. In this chapter, God is speaking specifically to the Jewish leaders, to their judges and to the, to the leaders. And he says this, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now, let me ask you something, when the, when the weak and the needy are already in the wicked's hands, how do you rescue and deliver them without force? Proverbs 24, 10 to 11. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. You know, as I was meditating on some of these passages this week, something struck me. If you read the last half of that verse, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. Does that not perfectly describe the allied soldiers who risked their lives to stop the holocaust? It describes them perfectly. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Psalm 144 verse 1, David says this, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for what? War. And my fingers for what? Battle. See, David, in his role as a king... In his role as a king, that's a civil authority, God did not expect him in that role to turn the other cheek. He expected him to defend his people. And in that role, in that sphere, it was God himself who made David good at war. In that context. Proverbs 25 verse 26. And there's many, many, many more. And I will touch on some more next week because I said this message is going to bleed into next week. Proverbs twenty-five, verse twenty-six: Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. So of you thinking, but I thought Jesus said, "Don't resist an evil person." And here the Bible says exactly the opposite. If, I'll read to you in the New Living Translation version. It's a good version, um, and I like it in this verse. It's a godly given to the wicked. It's like polluting. It's like polluting a fountain or muddying a spring. The Bible says that to not resist an evil person, to not push back, to not stand up to them is like polluting water. Let me tell you something. I want to, and, and this is a very important point, what I'm going to say next, and it's going to apply throughout this series as I'm talking about tough passages. Here's a warning that we all need Never build a theology off of one passage of Scripture. Never build a huge theology. This is a temptation for Christians. They'll take one verse or one set of verses or one chapter and they say, this is how we live in every area of life. And they won't synthesize it and take the whole counsel of God into account. If you took the last five minutes of this message, you took out the notes and you took what I'd said and you spread it around this community, some people might get the impression that I think, violence is the only answer. And I think those, those pastors at on are just a bunch of warmongers. If you just took the last five minutes of this message, you could maybe convince them of that, right? But it's not true. If you want to know what we believe, you've got to hear the whole message. And next week's too, so you'll have to come back. <laughs> but if you want to know what we really believe, you've got to listen to the whole thing. It's the same with the Bible, You can make any theology pretty much that you want by finding one verse or one set of verses and then taking that and building your whole theology. But if you want to know what God really says, you have to pay attention to the whole counsel of God. And many Christians have got a lazy approach to theology and what they want this to be is one size fits all. I mean, it's, it's either all peace and lying down for evil people, or it's all war and fighting back. And the reason we want one-size-fits-all is because we don't want to have to listen. We don't want to have to discern. That's too, that's too hard. We would rather just know, always I do this, or always I do this. You say, well, are you, you know, preaching subjective morality, that sometimes what's good is bad, and sometimes what's bad is good? No. The Bible is clear about the moral law. It is always, 100% of the time, bad to lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, murder, and all of those things. The Bible is very clear about the moral law. But when it comes to complex issues like how do you resist an evil person, the Bible says there is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Look at this, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. If we're going to have wisdom, if we're going to be as shrewd as serpents, as Jesus said, and as wise as doves, we're going to have to take the whole Bible into account and not create a doctrine off of one passage that creates contradictions with much of the rest of Scripture. So what have we learned so far? Well, what we've learned so far is that turn the other cheek does not apply to, the, to courtrooms, to law enforcement, to warfare. It doesn't apply there. So what does it mean? Well, let's go back and read it again. Matthew five thirty eight to 39, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, now that's very specific, isn't it? Very specific. In fact, we're lazy with our quoting of this verse. We always say, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one. That's actually not what it says. It says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one. Now, when we North Americans, when we read this verse, uh, we tend to visualize, okay, an evil person slaps you on the face, this is an assault. Someone's jumping you in a dark alley with a knife, and, or you're someone you love, and Jesus is saying, when they attack you like this, or beat you, or assault you, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. That's actually not what Jesus' listeners were picturing at all. It's also not what Jesus was thinking when he preached this message. If anyone will slap you on the right cheek. Let's look at some context here, shall we? In Middle Eastern culture, the, uh, one of the uh, most degrading insults, one of the most degrading insults you give someone in Middle Eastern culture would be to slap them with the back of your hand across the face. Okay? And it was a very specific kind of insult. It was a a huge put-down. It would only be done from a person of power to a person of lower social status. So a master to a slave. Get out of here. A, A Roman to a Jew. Get out of my way. A wealthy person to a poor peasant. And it just, it signified dominance. The point of the slap actually wasn't to hurt them physically. It was to humiliate them. It was to put them in their place had nothing to do with beating someone or attacking someone so you would hit them with the back of your hand like this now the other thing you need to realize about middle eastern uh, culture is that it was a right-handed culture okay and it's very important to realize they did everything with the right hand they would shake your hand with the right hand they would eat with the right hand they would if you wanted something past you it would be past you with the right hand and the reason is very simple They didn't have toilet paper in those days, they didn't have soap dispensers, and so you didn't have good hygiene with bathroom stuff, and the left hand was used for unclean purposes, okay? To clean your bum, if you get what I'm saying, okay? (laughs) Now, when you live in a culture where you don't have the soap dispensers and the toilet paper and all the hygiene, okay, and one of your hands is the one that's used for cleaning your bum, then you want to not mix up your left and your right hands, yeah? (laughs) So it's very important. Actually, I talked to a man yesterday who has spent time in uh, India. And he says, in many places in India, it's still like that today. Okay? And so you have this right-handed culture. You would never touch someone with the left hand. They would be very offended. That's gross. Okay? So now, so when you... A person of dominance now would slap a, a lower person to put them in their place. They would do, like everything else they did, they would do it with their right hand. And so you would slap with the back of your hand like this. And of course... If you go to slap someone with the back of your right hand, okay, so if I'm slapping this way, someone who's facing me, okay, what cheek am I hitting? The right cheek. Jesus said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Jesus is not talking here about an assault, is he? He's not envisioning a beating, He's not envisioning a robber or a thug jumping out at you to rob you or to harm you in some way. He's, he's envisioning and preaching about a very specific insult in Middle Eastern culture. It had nothing to do with physical pain. It had to do with humiliation and degradation. This is a very important point. Because turning the other cheek when he preaches about it applies to insults, not assaults. This passage has nothing to do with self-defense either. Has nothing to do with self defense. Okay? And I'm gonna and we're gonna explore this more in just a moment. I just want to make sure, now that we're here right now, I want to hit two things real hard. First of all, that's why this passage does not apply in any way, shape, or form to a battered wife. It doesn't apply. Jesus was not picturing a woman being beaten by her husband in this passage. It has nothing to do with that situation, and we will never perpetuate that at this church. If Jesus was physically in a room, and a man was beating his wife, I'll tell you what he would do. He would make a whip out of cords, and physically drive that man out of the house. That's what he would do. That is not a turn-the-other-cheek situation. That is a get out of that situation. That's what it is. It's not a self-defense situation where a young woman heading to her car at night is assaulted and she's supposed to somehow turn the other cheek. No, Jesus does not say anything about that in this passage. And we'll talk a bit more about self-defense next week, but the Bible uh, says a lot about it and it certainly gives us all kinds of leeway to do whatever is necessary. This passage isn't about that. It's about an insult. Now I want you to imagine now, okay? So the slap part, we get confused. We think of it as a physical assault, but it's not. It's an insult. But I want you to think now about how you feel when someone degrades you like that. They give you an insult. They slap you on the cheek. How do you respond? You've just been humiliated. What do you do in that situation when someone has humiliated you in front of your coworkers or your family or whatever it is? humiliated you. Well, you can't, you, what, what are our options, right? You can't take revenge because Jesus says in this passage, you can't apply eye for an eye and tooth for tooth in your individual relationships, so revenge is out. So what's left? A lot of Christians have taken this passage to me and it just means, you know, I kind of put my tail between my legs and I slink away. And Jesus says, actually, there's a third way. You don't slink away. When they slap you on the right cheek, you turn to them the other cheek too and you say, hit me like an equal. See, because a backhand was a dominance, degradation. But instead of slinking away, you say, you might have all the power, but I won't give you my dignity. And you turn to them the left cheek. Now the only way for them to hit you is to punch you, which is what you do with an equal. This takes tremendous amounts of courage, doesn't it? You stand there and turn the other cheek. It's a radically different way of handling insults. And it does two things. First of all, it shames the insulter, doesn't it? It shames the insulter. The insulter goes to humiliate you and to watch you slink away. And you just stood there and took it and then went like this. Well, they can't insult you again. That just makes them look like a brute animal, doesn't it? I mean, I'll never forget an exchange I had with another man a long time ago. This exchange was getting heated and uh, I got overly heated and, and I just went off on this mini tirade and I got very sarcastic, just dripping with sarcasm and insulting and I just had this mini tirade against this person. And at the end of it, he just stood there quietly and then he said, well, I didn't expect any better from you. Ouch. You know, I wished he would have laid into me right? Isn't that true? Like, hit me back, right? Insult me back, because then I'll feel good about what I just did to you. But the moment he did that and just turned his other cheek, the moment he said, well, I didn't expect much better from you, but he refused to give me back insults, you know what that did? In that moment, we both knew who was the better person in that conversation. I was brought low in an instant, there's only one thing left for me to do right there, and then I just apologized profusely. I said, it left a bad taste in my mouth too. I am ashamed. See, it, put, it just takes, now what are they going to do, right? They've got all the power, and you just stood there. The ball's in their court now. Second thing it does is it diffuses the situation, doesn't it? I mean, if this guy, if he would have insulted me back, it just, kinda, it just keeps going, right? When does it stop? But at the moment he just jumped off without returning, the whole thing is done. You can't keep fighting when the person won't fight back. That's turn the other cheek. It's Jesus' third way of handling insults. But it has nothing to do with a physical assault or an abusive situation. Absolutely amazing. That's turn the other cheek. Turning the other cheek means you don't return evil for evil, you don't return insult for insult, and you don't take revenge. But it also doesn't mean that you become a doormat. Turning the other cheek means you stand up to evil people without insulting them. You stand up to them without stooping to their level. Let me just give you three quick practical applications here of of turning the other cheek in Jesus' way. Because there's been so much misunderstanding of it. Turning the other cheek includes being honest about how you feel. Okay? I already got a response back from yesterday of a person telling me, just, again, the the release that they felt when they were able to understand some of these truths. But there's just been so much over-spiritualization. People have this idea in their relationships, like the most spiritual thing I can do when someone walks over me, when someone degrades me, when someone hurts me, the most spiritual thing I can do is just internalize it. Don't say anything. Just let it happen and forgive them. That's not turning the other cheek. Turning the other cheek includes that you can be honest about how you feel. The spouse that is being worked, walked over and walked over and walked over, that's not spiritual. What you need is courage. There's a third way where you stand up. Now, you don't return insult for insult. You don't do it in an ungodly way. But you stand up and you say, I don't like it when you. It really hurts me when you. It bothers me when you. And you do that in marriage. You do that at work, whatever it is. Turning the other cheek does not mean you can't be honest about your feelings. In fact, if you want to go to the places you need to be in your relationships, particularly in marriage, it's going to take 100% brute honesty in love. Turning the other cheek includes being honest about how you feel. Turning the other cheek includes setting clear boundaries. I've just heard way too much teaching and seen way too many people where they think turning the other cheek means you can't draw a line in the sand. You most certainly can. If you're in a marriage and your spouse is spending all kinds of money that they shouldn't be spending, then that can't be spent. You can stand up to them and say, I'm going to go tell Tim Ryan, Pastor Tim Ryan on you. And we might have to get separate bank accounts. But you can set a boundary. You can say, I won't stand here and listen to you talk to me that way. I'm going to leave the room. You can say it to your boss. Your boss degrades and humiliates you. You can stand up to him or her and you can say, I don't have to take this. You don't respond evil for evil. You don't respond insult for insult. And by the way, it also isn't unspiritual to tell the proper authorities when the situation requires it. Turning the other cheek is not becoming a doormat. Thirdly, turning the other cheek includes getting out of an abusive situation. I touched on this one already before. You, do not, you are not being more spiritual in God's eyes when you keep going back and keep going back and keep going back and perpetuating a cycle of abuse, whether it be with a boss or a co-worker or a, or a spouse. You can get out of that situation. And by the way, some of you are saying, are you, you know, advocating divorce? No, you can get out of a situation without divorcing. You can get out of a situation without divorcing. While well, so much more could be said on some of those things, and books have been written on the boundaries and, and whole courses we've done here and stuff, my point isn't to show you exactly how to do it. My point is to give our church family permission to act in wise and godly ways based on God's Word. Well, let's just briefly review here. I want to make sure that we have this before we go into next week. Let's briefly review what we've learned here today. Turning the other cheek does not apply to courtrooms, law enforcement, or warfare. It also does not apply to self-defense. It does mean you can't take revenge. It does mean you can't return insult for insult. And it also does mean you can stand up for yourself in a righteous manner. You don't slink away, you stand there and turn it. Little teaser for next week. Next week we're going to talk about what Jesus meant. Whatever could he have meant when he said, if someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. What did Jesus mean when he said, if someone begs money from you, you have to give it to them? What does he mean by that? We're also gonna look a little bit more at some of the things like nonviolent resistance. And what does the Bible say about self-defense? All right, so you have to come back for that next week. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we praise you. I thank you for the wisdom contained in your word. It is godly, it is good, it is just. I thank you, Father, for what you're gonna do in our hearts and lives in the coming weeks as we learn these truths and study them deeper. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.